Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Talk Witchcraft podcast. In this episode, Erica and I will be discussing a topic that is important to both of us, curiosity. We'll be sharing what it means to be curious and how to be more curious in your witchcraft practice. You're listening to Talk Witchcraft. On this podcast, we talk about witchcraft as a lifestyle and discover how to merge magic into your daily life. Every week, we'll demystify witchy topics like tarot, astrology, crystals, herbs, and more as you develop your personal brand of magic and create the life of your dreams. We're We're your hosts, hosts, the Mystic Mystic Sisters, Sisters, Erica and Maggie. In this segment of the show, we choose a tarot card for the week and we look for the moments that relate to this card in our daily lives. For this episode, we chose the Ten of Swords. The theme of this card is tragedy. The Ten of Swords is one of the most disturbing cards in the tarot. I think it's the only one that depicts bodily harm with the Ten of Swords sticking into a face down person. It's very reminiscent of like a murder drawing or a murder drawing outline thing. Some people say that this person is only injured, but even if that's the case, this is going to be a really long recovery for them. It's also like the Monty Python line, tis but a flesh wound when the knight has his arms and legs cut off. So this card is not great to see. It's a barrage of hardships hitting you one after the other, and you don't even have time to pull out one sword before another one hits. You can't really start the healing because you keep getting hit with another hardship and another one and another one. But there is a hopeful aspect of this card, and that is that this is rock bottom. You can't go lower than this. This is the end of the suffering. Everything bad that has been coming your way is going to stop at this point, and you can start that healing process. And we can see this because if we look at the horizon, the sun is rising in the picture. There's that saying, it's always darkest before the dawn, meaning you're at the darkest point and the sun is rising. So Erica, do you have a story about a time where you were at the rock bottom and you stayed down because it was time to just let those things keep hitting you and then you knew that it was time to heal once you could pull those swords out again so this is going to sound terrible but I think it's going to be the events that happened at your wedding and not because it was your wedding because that was a glorious and magical day but it was when my ex made her true colors known and tried her darndest to drive that final wedge between me and my family and hit me with a lot of swords in that moment the only thing that I could do was drive her home and that meant I had to leave the wedding festivities it meant I had to leave Miss Maggie behind and couldn't celebrate with her anymore but I needed to get her away from that event so that Maggie could celebrate I mean it worked because I didn't realize how bad things were on the day all of that was shielded from me and Dana that effort that you put in did protect me from it so that was me just laying down and waiting for it to pass but it was then the sun was rising of showing that this is not a good place to be and that I needed to figure out a way to 
get out. I think that often happens with big events. That's when people do show their true colors. It took having a big family event for the sun to rise again. In some ways, that was a low point for our family in general, noticing Erica pulling away from us in times and making a conscious effort to make sure that she couldn't do that. And that was what kind of led to you joining the podcast, even after we started doing our sacred reading calls, which I specifically wanted to do because of what I was noticing in that relationship with you is wanting to make sure that we had a weekly setup where I could talk to you. And then that eventually led to like even more talking on the podcast. If you ever want to do a vow renewal, (laughs) I... (laughs) would show up with all the bells and whistles. Let's just say that because I didn't get to experience your wedding in the way that I wanted to. And I'm glad that you had your the wedding that you wanted and that I was able to protect you from it. But it meant that I had to take a lot of stab wounds <laughs> to get through it. Let's move on to happier things. Well, let's hear your sad story and then we'll move on to happier things. <laughs> so I guess for me, uh, I will talk about the series of events leading up to COVID. We had just lost Poppy, which we've talked about on the podcast, our grandfather. So we were all very sad about this loss and trying to figure out what that meant for our family. And then I was in Colorado for his memorial service. We were moving on it into her new home because she had been very sick in the hospital for several months. On my way back to Florida from the memorial service after like you know, getting her all settled in and thinking everything was fine with her. I got a text. It was just a support text of like, I love you all so much. And I thought it was just like a nice, like, oh, thanks cousin. (laughs) And it turns out that that was because Anna had also passed away. So then I was kind of, you know, collecting that information and trying to make my way home from the airport. I remember laying down on the couch, just you know, facing the pillows and crying off and on. I think I was feeling the loss of both of them. I think I had been kind of in a state of denial with Poppy's death and having the news that Anna was also gone. I felt it all like amplified. And I was also feeling sad because I wasn't there anymore. I wasn't able to be with the family and I had just been with the family in kind of a celebratory way celebrating Poppy's life at the memorial and then also celebrating Anna's like fresh start moving out of the hospital. And then just a few, like a week, I think the COVID shutdown started. So any sort of support of being with the family or being with anybody, so friends or anything to cheer me up, that was impossible as well. It was just me and Dana hanging out in our apartment. And I know a lot of people went through that same exclusion from society. We all went through that at the beginning of COVID. It really did feel scary. It's weird to think back on it now that we're kind of, we're not through it, but we're kind of on the other side of that really scary, uncertain time, which is such a stupid phrase now. Like all the commercials were like, we're in this together in these uncertain times. (laughs) (laughs) It was a scary time and we didn't know what was going to happen. And we didn't know really, we didn't have any information. The other piece of it with you being in Florida and us being here in Colorado, you weren't able to go through their house. You weren't there at the state sale. You weren't there for when we spread their ashes. And we would have been able to have a memorial for Anna the same way that we did for Poppy. Just all of these little things that normally you would have been. If it hadn't been COVID, like you would have landed in St. Pete probably the next week, turned around and come back. That time did feel like, here's a stab. Here's a stab. Here's another stab. 
here's another stab. <laughs> oh, and the whole world is shutting down. Let's give you four stabs for that one. <laughs> are you ready to switch to our main topic for the week? Yeah. So we are talking about curiosity and witchcraft. When we're talking about curiosity, I think it's as usual, important to talk about what we mean when we say this word. This is a desire to know and understand what is happening around you. It is a quest for knowledge and a thirst for learning. It's what drives us to explore, to ask questions, and to learn new things. And curiosity is really the engine that powers a lot of the science and innovation that makes us human. Curiosity is also a driving force for a witch. A witch who is not curious is unlikely to learn new spells or explore the possibilities of their craft. If you're not curious in your witchcraft practice, you're likely to become stagnant and your magic might become stale. A witch who is curious will always be learning, growing, and evolving, and your magic will be fresh and your spell casting will be more powerful. With that in mind, if you want to be more successful in your witchcraft practice, it's really important to cultivate this sense of curiosity, letting your inquisitive nature lead you down new paths and always be open to learning new things because the more curious that you are, the more magical you will become. Right. It's looking at, well, why do we use sage for cleansing and purification rituals? It's why is rose quartz associated with the heart and love? Why are the tarot cards laid out the way that they are and have the symbolism and meanings that they have? Why do we wear a pointy hat? What is the meaning of a pentacle? Any question, you know, any logical question that you have. Maggie and I talk about being lifelong learners and that it's this idea of there's always another level to your knowledge. There's always a deeper understanding you can have about anything. You can always learn more about a topic that even you may have mastery of. There's always something that you can add to your craft and add to your magic. And when you have a more fulfilling and robust understanding of why the magic is working the way that it's working, it makes it that much more potent and powerful. Witchcraft is so much about self-exploration and spiritual exploration there's just so much that saying that you're not curious to learn more because you've learned enough is limiting you because there's always more to just like expand that horizon a little bit further there's that diagram of your comfort zone and then a slightly bigger circle is your growth zone and then a slightly bigger circle is a exploration zone and every time that you expand your comfort zone those other circles get bigger too. So you keep expanding where you're comfortable to a bigger and bigger area. In education, we call that the zone of proximal development. <laughs> <laughs> you teach somebody at their zone of proximal development and you stretch them just outside that zone. In case you were curious about that. <laughs> Always. There is an idiom in English that is used as a warning about prying into things that aren't your business. And that idiom is curiosity killed the cat. And so sure, I agree. Sometimes curiosity can be nosiness. And there are some cases where curiosity can get you into trouble. But curiosity killed the cat is only the first part of that expression. The whole idiom says curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. That last part really changes the meaning of the whole thing. You hear a lot of people will say that first part, curiosity killed the cat as a way to discourage you from 
being curious about that thing, asking too many questions or prying into that area in a way that is a warning that there are dangers involved when you're experimenting or inquiring in an unnecessary way. But with that second part, satisfaction brought it back. It tells us that the risk may actually be worth it because there is satisfaction in knowing the truth, having a deeper understanding of things. I think that in some cases it can go to an extreme, but like you said, there are times when it's unnecessary to be curious, but particularly when we're talking about witchcraft topics, being curious is not a bad thing. And I remember when I first learned about the hermetic principles of magic, it was just so soul satisfying to learn those things and recognize them in the way that I viewed the world and just being like, whoa, <laughs> like it was so, I don't know how to describe it. Satisfying. It was very satisfying to know those theories about the universe, recognizing them as at least a truth in my experience. I think too, on the other side of that same coin, when you learn something and you're like, this is really cool. Like, let's take sage and using the word smudging. It's a very easy step into the world. Smudging is kind of a cool word. And I get like to talk about this cool purification thing. And I'm doing something neat for my house. And I'm learning all this fun stuff. And then, oops, I learned something new about it because I was curious and I wanted to find out more about the practice. And now I have to change my viewpoint on this practice and call it something different because it's not mine to own. And so I think that's kind of where that killed the cat came from, because it is a, it's a damaging feeling to know that you've done something incorrectly, not intending to, but maliciously. And it makes you feel like you've been stabbed right in the gut. But then when you find out new ways that you can use other things besides white sage, you could do some rosemary cleansing, you can use lavender, you can use all of these different kinds of things. I think that's where that satisfaction brought it back peace comes in. I think that's really insightful about what curiosity does, because I do think that that happens when you learn something, no matter what it is, like if you're working really hard at a new skill, uh, learning tarot or something, and suddenly it clicks, then there's always that plateau. And so it kind of kills your wanting to continue learning because you're at this comfortable place. But then like having that satisfaction of being able to do that thing over and over again, encourages you to keep going to the next plateau. So there's always like the disappointment of learning that you've done something wrong, like with your example about the sage or reaching that plateau, like talking about learning a new skill like the tarot, that kind of stifles your desire to learn new things. But then when you take that next step to learn another new thing, it encourages it to grow again. If we want to anthropomorphize the word into a cat, curiosity is cat-like behavior. They are always poking their nose around. They're always, I'm just picturing my cat. And anytime I open a new door or a new closet, she's got to go investigate. Like, what is this new place? I can have a box laying around and she gets bored of it. And then I move it to another place and suddenly it's brand new again. What is this thing? You know? <laughs> oh, it's so true. <laughs> so I guess what we're trying to say is that be more cat-like in your witchcraft practice, find ways to move that box around or to open a new door so that things that maybe seemed boring or mundane or things that are feeling stagnant become new again and you can explore them. Maggie got me this Oracle deck of self-care activities. It was made by Deja Osborne. 
and it is called My Quality Time. I don't know if I've talked about the pictures because it's hard to talk about the pictures in an auditory medium, but they are wonderful watercolors. They're just beautiful. So if you want to go support Miss Osborne, then I highly recommend it. So this one is perfect for Maggie and me. I've seen it go through the shuffle multiple times and I've been waiting for it to come up and it is puzzle. So just some history about our family. We are a family of puzzle makers. I think our parents probably did like six to 10 puzzles during all of COVID. Just yeah, during the lockdowns, it seemed like it was like a puzzle a week, basically, is what it seemed like they were doing. We all four of us have a different approach to the puzzles. I like to mod podge them and keep them as artwork because I don't like to take apart the work. Our parents are the opposite. They put it together. They'll leave it up for like a day or two so they can look at it, enjoy it, and then they crumple it all up and put it back in the box and and they trade puzzles with people too so that's part of it is they're like okay well we did this one let's give it to our friends and then I have like four puzzles that I own and I just like to do them over and over again even though I already have figured out that that weird piece that's got that teeny white tip it doesn't go where you think it does (laughs) it goes in this other spot and I know that now There's been research done on the idea that like rereading a favorite book is good for your mental health. There's a safety in knowing what's to come. And then also part of like that curiosity piece of you learn something new each time you do it. So I think that's why you do puzzles that way. For my puzzle this week, I'm going a little outside the box. (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) And I purchased for myself as a special little treat the Lego Van Gogh Starry Night. You weren't supposed to do that. Why not? Because you were asking for it for a gift. No, I want Titanic. Oh, you want the Titanic. Okay. The Titanic is very expensive and Van Gogh Starry Night was only medium expensive, (laughs) but I bought it for myself and my boyfriend is in Australia this week for business. So it's just me and my roommate. I thought that it would give me something to do while he's away. Well, that's a perfect thing to do. Well, I do puzzles a lot, not specifically the jigsaw puzzles, but I'm kind of taking the broader sense of the word into like word puzzles and games and stuff. Like every day I have a daily wordle, jumped on that trend, but I think I actually will do a jigsaw puzzle because I got one and I haven't had a chance to do it. And it's just been sitting on my table. I mean, it seems a little on the nose for this episode theme, but I swear it was just a random poll. But, you know, taking the broader sense of the word of puzzle and curiosity, you have to have curiosity in order to complete those puzzles. All sorts. Problem solving, like, you know, there's the verb of I'm puzzled because I can't figure something out. It reminds me of that episode of How I Met Your Mother, Barney and Ted's plan to buy a bar. And they're going to call it puzzles because people will ask, why is it called puzzles? That's the puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we're going to tell you about different ways to be curious, particularly with your witchcraft practice. The first way to do that is to ask questions, to encourage the question by creating a situation where there is a question. And also when something comes up and you're confused about it, don't assume that you know things, ask a question. I don't particularly care for this philosophy of street epistemology. What's street epistemology? I will tell you. Street epistemology is a conversational tool that helps people reflect on the reliability of the methods used to arrive at their deeply held beliefs. 
why do you believe there's a God? Why do you believe that the sky is blue and the grass is green? It's looking at these things that we just believe to be true. And it forces people to question that fundamentally held belief. I think that there are lots of good things about it, but I do think that it stems in misogyny and elitism. And so I have a few problems with it. I am not endorsing street epistemology at all, but I do find some of their practices interesting because their main one is to ask questions. Their main one is to start with the fundamental truth that people believe, say, okay, well, why this? What would happen if this? How do you reach that conclusion if this is also true? I think the structure of it has merit, as always, with a lot of philosophies. But a lot of people who practice this come from a place of, I know better than you and you are stupid. So I think that if you can ask questions kindly and with genuine curiosity to help people explore why they hold the beliefs they do, this is a good thing. But I don't think that you should come to it from a place of, I know better than you and you are wrong. Which leads us to another thing that you can do while asking questions. And that's thinking about how you interact with people online. Yeah. What I've observed with online interactions, I think so many people want to be the expert in everything. And that's not the case. If we were having a conversation face-to-face, you don't automatically assume that you know more than the person you're talking to. But when you're online, it just seems like so many people just automatically go to this place where everybody else is stupid And so when somebody writes something or makes a comment or does anything, the first response is often, well, actually. The one that I remember and hold on to a lot, it was right around Lunasa. And I had written what Lunasa represents. It's the first harvest, the tapering off of summer and beginning of fall that Maggie and I have kind of talked about shifting the idea of when the seasons start. I wrote happy fall and a professor of mine that I hadn't really talked to since I graduated came on and said well actually fall doesn't start until the equinox she skipped my entire post about what Lunasa means to me and why I feel this way and only went to my statement of happy fall came in with this like I know better than you and it really rubbed me the wrong way she couldn't just accept a new viewpoint she had to come in and be like zing I got you (laughs) a way to approach that and something after that brought it to my attention of how I want to approach online conversations is when I see something that doesn't make sense to me or that I want to say, well, actually to instead asking a question like, that's interesting. Why do you believe that? Mm -hmm. Sort of like that that street epistemology you said. (laughs) Epistemology. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. If this professor had come in, like I celebrate fall at the equinox, why are you saying it now? Mm -hmm. Any sort of like questioning behavior or wanting to show curiosity and learn more, I wouldn't have gotten so prickly. I wouldn't have reacted the way that I did. I would have wanted to educate because that's part of my viewpoint on life is to teach and to help others learn and be curious. And another thing 
when it comes to like being curious in your witchcraft and asking questions is you can use divination in order to help you answer those questions. Oftentimes with divination, it's not always about finding truth. It's more about exploring options and exploring ideas and finding inspiration. So you wouldn't necessarily be able to ask, why do you celebrate the first day of fall on Lunasaw and get an answer? But being curious in terms of like self and spiritual exploration, where it's not necessarily like truth finding, you can ask questions of the tarot or any form of divination, bibliomancy, scrying, the runes, all of them. What should I do about this job? What should I do about this problem that I have with this person? How do I create this piece of artwork that I've got in my brain? What would be the next action for this situation that I'm in? What advice do you have for making this choice versus making this other choice? That's kind of where you go with divination is answering questions. The other thing that you can do to help you answer questions, which we will talk about both more in depth, is by doing research and by doing experiments. You can find all sorts of information about witchcraft all over. You can absorb information by reading, by looking in books, witchcraft publications online or in print, blogs. If you're more of an auditory learner, then you might want podcasts or videos. And then experimentation, which again, we'll talk about later, is if you're more of a kinetic learner. You can also learn from witches in your community, whether that's online or in person. And that is a way to have your questions answered. Regardless of how you collect your information, it's important to be critical as you research. The internet is vast and huge and anyone can publish anything that they want with no manner of any sort of truth or logic behind what they say. Having said that, there are tons of wonderful sources of information about witchcraft that you can learn a lot from, but be cautious of the scams, details that are really just someone else's opinion, falsehoods and lies, and things that may challenge your own personal ethics. So we'll share some tips quickly to help you be a critical researcher when it comes to researching witchcraft. The thing about researching spiritual topics is, again, there's not necessarily one true thing when thinking about like peer review and things like that. That's not necessarily the thing that you're going to find because there's no scientific study of a spiritual practice. We'll talk about some of the things that will help you to find reliable information, information that is not harmful to other people and the community in general. The first thing you should look at is the time period. People have been practicing witchcraft in some form or another for a very long time, and society has gone through many changes in that time. So knowing what the culture of the time period your information came from can help you better understand the content and understand what the lifestyles and beliefs of that time period were. Right. It doesn't necessarily justify if there's problematic things in the text, gendered language or cis heteronormative practices. It doesn't necessarily make it so that that's the only way that you should practice witchcraft but it does give you some context. Another thing to think about when you're researching is that there is always a bias. Even published authors have a bias 
And that is going to give some flavor to the information that they're sharing. They might not like a particular religion. They might claim that certain practices are invalidating of someone else's practice. They might have some beliefs that you disagree with. And that doesn't mean that you can't learn from that person. It doesn't mean you shouldn't read their book or read their blog. It's just important to understand that that bias is going to be affecting the information that they're presenting to you. And it might change the meaning. Bias isn't inherently bad or good. It just is. And we all have it because we all experience the world in different ways. And so you just have to be on the lookout for it. What is the bias? Where are they coming from? What is their life experience? You can also look at the author's evolution. As your practice grows and evolves, so does the author's. You might find a particular author has written a series of books and some of them resonate with you while others just feel way off. Remember that they have allowed for freedom in their growth and they have found other people to learn from and they have changed their viewpoints on different things. I know Maggie has had this happen with her blog writing that she starts out on a topic one way and it has evolved and grown as she's evolved and grown. See when the author published that blog or that book compared to maybe they've rewritten it and they've got a newer updated version. And you can see this really easily in Spiral Dance with the 20th anniversary and the 10th Mm -hmm. anniversary. It's nice because you can see she's not trying to erase her beliefs, erase what she had previously written. She makes a note about how things have changed between the 10th and the original and the 20th and the original. And even that can be something you can learn from. I know that the notes in the back of the book were really educational for me, seeing how the more experience she had, the more she grew and how I could learn from that experience. And I think the most profound change that I noticed in that book from her was her relation to gender. The original book was very femme focused. She was in a place in the 60s and 70s where having sacred spaces that were only for cis women was incredibly important and a need because it hadn't happened before. But then in her 20th edition, she talked about how that's not the case anymore. And they accept cis men and non-binary people and trans men and women and whoever comes to the table is welcome. And that's a huge, huge growth to go through in a lifetime. All of that is curiosity too. She wasn't staying stagnant in her previous held beliefs, even though those were powerful for her at the time. She was curious about the way that the world was changing and the way that culture was changing and shifting. And she allowed that to enter into her. I mean, I don't mean to speak for her, but that's what it seems like happened, that she allowed her curiosity to explore how these cultural shifts affected her practice and she allowed them in. You'll also want to, when you're researching, check facts, particularly things that are factual. Authors make mistakes, even going through tons of edits. There's still sometimes mistakes in books and blogs, blogs go through far fewer edits. It's your responsibility as a practitioner to make sure that before you drink a tea that it's actually safe to drink that. And also for like historical things, that's stuff that you can check because that is factually accurate. There are lots of witchcraft books that talk about like the burning times in ways that are just not historically accurate. Those kinds of things where you can actually check the facts. You should be checking facts. (laughs) It keeps you safe and it keeps you from spreading misinformation. We talked about online interactions earlier, infographics that just pop up randomly. It's really easy to share something that's totally inaccurate 
or might be half accurate. It has enough truth behind it that the rest of it must also be true. It's your job, your social responsibility, your own personal responsibility to make sure that the things that you're doing to keep yourself safe and to keep your community safe before you pass that information along. And then of course, there's cultural appropriation. Be wary of authors that steal from other cultures. If they're talking about a closed practice, they are spreading appropriated information and stealing from the cultures that they came from. So learn to separate what is viable and accessible to you based on your culture. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with learning about closed practices. I think that's part of the curiosity. Like we were talking about with the saging, smudging, using white sage, the more that you learn about that, the more that you know if that practice is appropriate for you. I think it's really interesting to learn about those things. Learning from somebody who is of that culture, first of all so that you're not learning from an author who's stolen it. Yes, there is a difference between cultural appropriation and a cultural appreciation. Yes, So exactly. appreciate what they are teaching. Make sure you are learning from somebody who is of that culture and they are willing to teach you so that you're not learning stolen information and appreciate it for what it is, but don't appropriate it into your own practice because it's not for you. Uh, another thing to look out for is when an author is using terms that are distinct interchangeably, it doesn't necessarily disqualify them from being a good source of knowledge, but witchcraft and Wicca are not the same thing. So if they're using those terms as if they mean the same thing, to me, that shows a little bit of like a lack of depth of their knowledge, not understanding that there is a difference between those words. It doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think that I should learn anything from them or I shouldn't read anything they've done, but it does make me a little bit more skeptical about what they're sharing that they might not have really investigated deeply in order to be sharing what they're talking about. The other thing to watch out for are just blanket statements as if every single witch and pigan has the exact same belief system. So if you read something that leaves you outside of the blanket, don't worry, you're not wrong. They're just making a statement and they're not involved in the inclusivity of the world at this point in time. Maybe they will, maybe they'll grow and be curious and learn. Just trust your beliefs and ethics and comfort over their opinion. And then just as a final note, when you're researching online publishers, as we talked about before with the internet in general, there is a lot more freedom for people to just publish whatever they want. And, you know, I think that learning from blogs or YouTube or podcasts is great. We might be biased because we are a podcast, but <laughs> it's just important to remember that blogs are less edited and podcasts and YouTube and everything. There's less eyes on that, which means that there is a greater chance that what you find in there is going to be less accurate. And that isn't to say that it's not valid. There is definitely an elitist belief that books are the only way to learn. There are lots and lots of different ways to learn. But when you are online and you are learning from them, it is just one person with their opinion. And it's always good to have a healthy dose of skepticism. And there are tons of books that are even less edited, less professional, more opinion-y than blogs can be. So <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So my mom got me or was going to get me for my birthday, a book that I had put on my Amazon wish list, And so she bought it and she got it. 
And Maggie can attest that it was the worst formatted and worst written book that we have ever seen. It wasn't even a book. It was a collection of this person's like sketches. And I don't, I don't mean to, I'm not an art critic or anything. I don't know that much about art, but it was like literally somebody's sketchbook that they hadn't finished is like pencil lines. Each page was like one sentence. It was like how to be a cottage witch. And then each page was like drink tea. And that was the whole page. That was the whole page. <laughs> and like a sketch drawing of tea. Yeah, a pencil line drawing of uh, of tea. With the way that publishing is now, it's like basically a step up from just like someone's opinion on a blog. So many people can self-publish. Some publishers are not worried so much about like good content. They just want to get more content out. But just in general, I guess we don't even need to talk about it as publishing. Just like in general, <laughs> there's a lot of crap out there. And so (laughs) reading as much as you can, reading or listening or whatever, however you learn best is going to help you because you'll be able to sift through all the crap to find the morsels of gold. And then if you are somebody who is more of like an experimenter, if you learn things better by just trying it yourself, you can't stand reading or listening to other people talk, which you're probably not listening to this podcast now if that's you. (laughs) But experimenting is a great way to have your questions answered, to ask those questions and then to answer them because you'll be able to see the results right in front of you. I have been told by my boyfriend that there's an element of this experimentation in me that he doesn't have that I just like, well, let's try it. Let's see what happens. (laughs) And he hasn't quite gotten to his growth point of being able to just let go and let live. And like I said, as you're reading, you're probably going to be finding things that conflict with each other, that you're probably going to find things that don't really make sense. And so being able to experiment and just try it, like, well, this author says this and this author says this, so I'm going to try it. Let's just try it and see what happens. And then that observation that you can glean, glean. So new word for me <laughs> is how you'll kind of determine which works for you. It doesn't mean that one person's wrong and another person's right. It just means that the one way is what works for you specifically. And I think this is one way to kind of combat the cultural appropriation. We talked about this in our episode about how to practice without cultural appropriation. Making things up yourself is one way that you're not going to be stealing someone's culture, but also just making things up is how you can just like see if something works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like there's definitely value to things that have deep roots in a culture and there's grooves in the collective mind. There's these thought forms. That thing works this way and the universe understands that rose quartz goes with Venus, but there's nothing wrong with like, well, I'm going to try hematite just using hematite as a representation of Venus. I mean, it's not even the worst example I could probably think of because I could make an argument for why anything goes with anything. (laughs) Hematite (laughs) is a very earthy stone. Corresponds with the blood. And Venus is about the heart, which is the pumping of the blood. There's the connection. You can make any connection. Because you are a Gemini and that's what you do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You could argue around anything and have everybody agree with you by the end of it. This episode is brought to you by Peppermint. 
I will start by telling about the medicinal properties and Maggie will share the magical properties. Peppermint scientific name is Mentha Pepperita and it is part of the Laminaceae family, which is one of my favorite families to say. Peppermint is used for the common cold, cough, inflammation of the mouth and throat. It is used for sinusitis, runny nose, fever, liver and gallbladder complaints, irritable bowel syndrome, cramps of the gastrointestinal tract, any sort of tummy ache, flatulence, GI issues, nausea, vomiting, morning sickness. It is my go-to for when I have a stomach ache. If I am not feeling well, I get my peppermint tea. It is also great for a tension headache, inflammation in the respiratory system. If you inhale peppermint oil, you can use it to treat symptoms of coughs and colds. Really good aromatic plant here. The oil can be rubbed directly on the skin for an analgesic for pain. It's just a great all-around herb. I think peppermint is one of those plants that we have had a lot of research around to help to support the idea that herbalism is a valid practice, just as we've had with, say, willow bark or caffeine, the coffee bean. Peppermint just has been around and it is known for its uses and it works quickly and it works well. There's just a lot of evidence for its effective use. There are no concerns for safety. You can use that with children eight years and older. If you are concerned about the stimulant factor with children, you can use catmint instead. And so it has less of that stimulant for children if you're using it to ease a tummy pain. Peppermint is an active herb. It corresponds with fire and air, Mars and Mercury, and Gemini. It can be used in general as a way to increase the energy of a space. So it is a great herb for cleansing to make a peppermint bundle, use it as a cleanser, and it also charges the space in the same process. Having a bath with peppermint in it, it kind of tingles and that's energizing. And then in terms of like mental energy, drinking a tea of peppermint is thought to bring clarity to your mind so that you can do what you need to do. So you can think the things you need to think. You can also rub it on your temple. So you could drink it as a tea or rub it on your temple if you have like a tonic of peppermint or peppermint essential oil mixed with a little carrier oil. Rubbing it on your temple can promote mental clarity as well. And because of the association with mental clarity, it's a good thing to incorporate into any sort of like divination ritual, whether you drink a tea or burn the incense of peppermint or add peppermint oil to your temple. It can also be used for energizing a romantic relationship or any sort of relationship. If you're feeling kind of in a rut or something with a friend or a loved one, using peppermint as a way to put a spark back into that relationship. Growing peppermint is a good way to offer some protection to your home because it grows so well. It makes a good barrier and it also creates like a cleansing barrier between you and any energy that you don't want to enter that home. But because of that property of growing well, it can be used for abundance and increasing things. Next week, we will be looking at our lives through the lens of the sun card, which is a major arcana card. And this card is all about positive energy, creativity, growth, joy, happiness, feeling enlightened, believing in yourself, being confident in yourself, being the center of attention, shining a light on things, 
bringing light into a situation. Again, we'll be looking at our lives through this lens of the sun. And if you have a story about the sun card, please send us a voicemail to we listen at talkwitchcraft.com. You could find out more about this episode by going to mumblesandthings.com slash 077. Join us next week when we talk about Letha. Make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so that you are notified when we put out new episodes and help other witches find this show by leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at our new Instagram account at mumbles. Academy for Witches. And if you have any other tips to add, tell us about it in the Talk Witchcraft Forum in the Mumbles Academy community. And don't forget to share this episode with your witchy friends and followers. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Podcast voice activate.